a ministry called uh, The Weekend to Remember Marriage Getaways Through Family Life. And we get to do four marriage conferences a year in different cities across the country, which is a lot of fun. Uh, we were in San Antonio last weekend. We're doing one in Chicago in March. So we're pretty excited about that. We'll give you more details on that in the future. But uh, this is our third time in San Antonio. And uh, San Antonio is known for what they have is a, a river walk. Yes, they, they do have more than the San Antonio Spurs, by the way. They have this river walk in downtown, which is actually really, really scenic. It's not a huge river. In fact, it's only three feet deep. But there's a nice walkways along the river. And then uh, in addition to that, great restaurants, tons of food, uh, shops, it's just a real, it's a real nice, nice place to go to and just to hang out. So Erica and I, whenever we've gone to San Antonio, we've done that, gone on the river walk. So this time we're eating at a, at a Mexican joint, a Tex-Mex restaurant. And while we're eating there on the river, all the seating's outdoors, and you could do that in November in San Antonio, not Chicago. We heard a splash, and then I heard a, ooh, turn around. There was a couple trying to take a, have someone asked someone to take a picture of them. And in the handoff, the guy dropped their phone into the river. And it was, this guy, it was that sound across the entire river, like, oh. And so I heard someone yell, it's only three feet. So sure enough, they got in there. They ended up getting the phone out. And we're just like, that is crazy. So I told our waiter, I said, how often does that happen? He's like, at least twice a week. <laughs> at least twice a week, a phone or something or someone falls in. I was like, really? He's like, yeah. What happens is people come during these different festivals, and it's real packed. And when people are there trying to take pictures or they're texting on their phone, they'll lose track, lose their balance, and just fall right into the river. It's like, yeah, that, I know some of you all will be there, right, in the river texting. And man, I was, I was like, that is so crazy, but that is so life, isn't that? What happens is life gets so packed and busy, and we just sometimes keep our head down on our phones, literally and figuratively, and we find ourselves getting distracted, getting off course, and slipping and sliding all over the place. And honestly, uh, for us, Thanksgiving allows us to kind of stop, focus on God, focus on his gifts and his goodness, and to just really set our eyes back on him. And so that's what we want to do this morning as we, as we just get in God's word. Um, I think about Thanksgiving, and I'm just thankful for so many different things, like good food. I'm really thankful for good food. I'm thankful for Chicago. I'm thankful for my Brooke family. Thankful for my wife and my kids. I'm thankful for Jesus. And you know, without Christ, man, we are just a hot mess. A hot mess. And I'm particularly thankful that He could fix things that are broken. I'm really thankful for that. I'm thankful that He knows how to get into the depths of our hearts where no one and nothing else can get. I got a new phone this week because Sprint told me my phone was not repairable. And so I got a nice little upgrade, which I'm cool with. And I think when we look at our lives, sometimes we feel like our hearts maybe are not repairable. And I want you to know God wants to give you an upgrade. Our God is a God who can get where you cannot go. And that's that heart, that depth of that heart. Today, we're talking about this very fact that there is no wound that God cannot heal. I hope you need to hear that today. There is no wound that God cannot heal heal. As we have been going through the life of David in 1st and 2nd Samuel, we found this mighty warrior, this guy named David, the king of Israel, who, who struck down Goliath. He's just, he's one of those guys that you're like, man, that's, that's, that's the kind of dude I want to be like for all the men are thinking that way. Um, he's, a, he's a psalmist. 
His songs that he written in Scripture, we sing them a lot of times. Like, this is the day that the Lord has made. You know that? That's David, right? Uh, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Who wrote that? David. David was the psalmist. He's the kind of person you read in Scripture. You're like, man, that dude is amazing. And we saw a couple weeks ago, like, oh, you're not that amazing. David actually bleeds red when he bleeds. He's like you and I, flawed, struck down, weak at times. And what David experienced in his life is what you and I often experience. There are sins that we commit or sins that have been committed against us that have created wounds in our hearts, and we start looking around saying, God, can you fix this? Can you fix this? Can I be repaired? Today we're going to talk about a particular wound that is a deep-seated wound, and it's one that came to the surface in our culture in 2017 with the Me Too movement. It's the wound of sexual abuse. In 2017, there was widespread sexual abuse in our country that's, been, that's come to the surface. Not that it just started happening, but for many years it was ignored. But really what Me Too has done is allowed it to become exposed. And we thank God for that. We thank God that sins have been brought to light so that healing can take place for those who've been victimized. Today we're going to see a story in Scripture that tells us that these things aren't new. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, we see an incident among David's children that follow the pattern of their own dad's sin two chapters earlier. Hearts of lust and deceit and evil and some people getting hurt who had nothing to do with it. But what we're going to see, there is no wound still that God cannot heal. Would you meet me in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 13? I'm going to read the opening verses here for us. Before I do that, I want to pray. Because I do know something. Um, I'll be quite honest with you. I've tried my best to change my sermon text this morning. There, there was a lot of thinking and processing uh, with Erica, the elders, just kind of like, I don't want, God, I don't want, I don't want to preach about this. But it was next up in our preaching schedule. And one thing that God reminds me often is that he's sovereign and I'm not. So he lines things up, and as his mouthpiece, we who preach here have the responsibility to just follow through on what God told us to say. Because we then believe that God is at work in ways that we don't see it or feel it. And so, as the week progressed, God gave me a confidence saying, you know, we need to talk about this. Because you know what? Hollywood and our media should not be running the show when it comes to things that belong in God's hands. Like healing and peace and truth. And so with that, I pray that as I open God's word today, I know, I know for some it's going to open up some crazy ones. My biggest fear this week was, God, I don't want to open wounds that that I don't know how to close. And God reminded me, it's not for me to close them. And so as the weight of this sermon opens up, and it's going to get heavy, there's going to be, I believe, a liberation and a freedom to come at the end that only God can do because his truth will shower over you who is wounded. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, that there is no such thing as a heart that is beyond repair. God, I thank you that there is no such thing as a wound too deep to be healed. 
So Lord, we come today and we don't want to try to fix things by our own strength or try to get things fixed by what we perceive to be the right way to fix them. But God, we want to come to you and we just want to acknowledge, God, I need you. We need you to fix our brokenness. And so, Lord, I just come and ask that your Holy Spirit, as you've already met us here, will continue to meet us here this morning. That we would just sense your presence in such a tangible way that, Lord, when we leave later on, we would say, God, you met us today. God, you were with us, and you did only what you could do to expose, to heal, to redeem. So, Lord, I pray you would do that. Oh, Father, be glorified at the brook with this church family. God, be glorified in your church throughout the city. God, we ask that you would move all for the sake of your glory and your name that is above every name. Amen. Would you meet me in 2 Samuel chapter 13 and rise to your feet as I read the scripture if you're able to. Um, in the blue Bible, does anyone have the page number there for me? I forgot to look. 264? Thank you very much. This is what God's word says in 2 Samuel chapter 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's other son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend, interesting word, whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was very, a very crafty man. And he said to him, to Amnon, that is, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, well, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made, it, made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him. But he refused to eat, and Ammon said, Send everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. I'm going to pause there. Pray once more, and we'll be seated. Father, we do ask that you would speak, that you would speak through me, let your spirit work. And God, we pray you give us ears to hear and eyes to see in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Pause there because I feel like the rest of the part takes me to the second half of my sermon, which we'll get to in a moment. King David is an interesting figure in the Bible. As I mentioned, he's a man of great faith, but he's also a man who had at least eight wives. 
and other concubines, the Bible says, with the plural, without telling us how many. David had 19 sons and one daughter by his eight wives, and we're not told how many children he had by his concubines. David's polygamy was allowed but not accepted by God. God God wasn't affirming it. It was a practice that ancient Eastern kings did to raise up a dynasty for themselves. It was also a status marker because you were not allowed to take a spouse unless you were able to provide for them, and so many kings took on multiple spouses to show how wealthy they were. David did then was just go along the lines of the culture in his day. And what we see is the Bible sometimes tells us stories without telling us whether this was good or bad, but it lets us to discern it sometimes. And a lot of times it tells us something that's clearly wrong, not by saying this is wrong, but by showing the result of it. And in David's life, we are shown the result of his sin. We're shown the result of his lustful passions in ways that are so broken. And so... David takes multiple wives, has multiple kids, and now he's got many sons and at least one daughter who are lining up for the throne after him. His oldest son is by the name of Amnon. His second son is Absalom. Absalom, we're told, is a very handsome man, and his sister Tamar then was very, likewise, very pretty. Amnon fell in love with Tamar, his half-sister. We're told here in the opening verses of chapter 13, he loved her. Love turned into lust quite quite quickly for Ammon, where it came to the point they were almost indistinguishable. And what Ammon happened to him was he became so tormented by his lust for his half-sister. And we're told in verse 2, it seemed impossible to Ammon to do anything to her. What that means is this. We're told later that she was a virgin, which means that she is now a grown woman who is practicing the law, waiting for herself to be given into marriage. So Ammon realizes she is is a woman who is pursuing God. So he feels like it's impossible for him to do anything to her. For, For sure as well, in addition to that, we know God's loss of the sex outside of marriage is not his plan. So Ammon again felt like his hands were tied because he's not married to her. And third of all, she's a sister. So Amnon is tormented in this lustful passion. He has for this woman who is his sister. One commentator says he should have stopped feeding that appetite the moment it started. But he didn't. And so he then let himself just go down this slippery slope. And one day, his cousin, Jonadab, sees Amnon in turmoil and says, Hey, what's going on? Why are you so tormented? Why are you so haggard morning by morning? Amnon tells him the situation, and then Jonadab says, basically, this is what you need to do. You need to pretend that you're sick, and when your dad, dad comes in to check on you, and David comes in, the king, tell him, I'm sick. Can my sister Tamar come on in, cook some food for me so I can get better? David, oblivious to the situation, allows this to happen. Jonadab, this counselor, this so-called friend, gives Amnon this awful advice. I do want to pause here because we see that the counsel we keep will affect the life that we lead. Amnon's friend was crooked. He was ratchet. 
He was someone who said, okay, I'll figure a way to get what you want to happen, and I'll do anything needed to make that happen. So he comes up, he conjures up this horrible plan. Family, I just got to say, like, the friends that surround you will influence you. It's going to happen. Yes, have people in your life who don't know the Lord, who who are broken people that you're going to influence. But when their influence is greater and their advice is more powerful, you are right now on a slippery slope. And Amnon is here surrounded with a wicked man who's given him advice for his wicked lust to satisfy that desire. Amnon says he loves his sister, but as one person says, true love would never violate another person's body just to satisfy their selfish appetites. Nor would true love try to persuade someone to disobey the law of God. But what Amnon does is he follows Jonadab's advice. So I was reading this, thinking about Amnon's uh, passions here. It's ironic because you see the parallels between this oldest son of David and David himself. Both King David and his son saw these beautiful women. Both King David and his son then create a plan to get them. And both King David and his son eventually will do some awful things and try to come get away with it. When I, when I read things like that, it reminds me in Scripture, as the Bible often tells us, that there is such thing as generational sin. There, there are kinds of sins that seem to be passed on, not through our bloodline, but through the example. But generational sin is true. It's tragic. But it doesn't have to be triumphant. It's, it's true. It does happen. And when it does, it's tragic. But it doesn't have to happen that way. I know some of us have had legacies handed down to us that have been less than desirable, but that doesn't mean that the life you lead has to be less than desirable. In fact, God is a God who knows how to take horrible legacies given to us, turn those things around, and use you to start a new life. And one of the funnest things about being a pastor is getting to know you guys. Because I've heard, and Erica and I have heard, many if not most of your stories. And for many of you, I've heard some really bad legacies you've been given. And for some of you, you began to follow the pathway of that legacy until God stopped you in your tracks and he showed you there's another way. And you've been spending your life now following Jesus' example and seeing God break the chains of generational sin that once held you down. There, There is hope for that. So I want you to know, just because you saw this model, just because your your family, your ancestors, this doesn't mean you have to or you will. And so what you might need to do, as we did in the song here, is speak God's truth over yourself, his promises over you on who you are. Because your past or your legacy or the, the, the heritage you received doesn't define you. Amnon failed because he allowed what he saw modeled affect them the way that he lived. And so what Amnon did was follow Jonadab's advice. I want to pause here as well, because when I read scriptures like this, I, man, this passage is hard to even read, let alone to preach. I mean, I was, I was doing studies on it as, as, as the scriptures, like, the, it is written, it's like written in this really poetic fashion and compelling ways, but it's like gut-wrenching. 
And as I read this, I can't help but start thinking, and maybe you're already there. It's like, okay, let's just take a few steps back and say, God, why do you allow this kind of stuff? Like, God, why, why even let sin enter the world to begin with? Let, let me illustrate it this way. Because uh, I and I went Black Friday shopping, and uh, right when we walked into Target, there were tons of Lego sets for sale. I've become a fan of Legos. Legos are pretty amazing. The things that you could build with these little step-by-step instructions. It's amazing. But once you build a great Lego set, you have all the temptation to glue that thing sealed. If you've seen the Lego movie, it's called the Craggle, the crazy glue. And you want to you glue it because it's this great masterpiece. And when we look at creation, we look at what God did in six days of creation, this masterpiece, and there's no other way to explain this beautiful creation. It's a masterpiece by the greatest artist ever. And we're saying, God, craggle this thing. Just glue it together. When you made Adam and Eve, make without the possibility of sinning. Just just allow it so that it could never fall apart. When I see creation and I read it, that's what I'm thinking. Why even give Adam and Eve the opportunity to reject you, God? The conversations our kids ask us when we put them to bed. And this is when we're like, hey, mommy's coming in the room in two minutes. You can ask her that question. Like, these are like kind of like, you know what they call this in the world of apologetics and philosophy? They call this theodicy. It's how do you reconcile a good God with the problem of evil? And passages like this, I'm like, God, everything after this for the rest of the next several chapters is evil. There's no redemption in this chapter in and of itself. So I'm saying, God, why even let evil to begin with? I was reading a book recently called Defending Your Marriage by a guy named Tim Uhlhoff. And he, he says, you know, some people ask, why did God create Satan? He says, well, the answer is he didn't. And I'm like, okay, where are you going with this, bro? And he's like, God created an angel. The angel rebelled and became Satan. You see, what God has done is he's given you and I freedom of choice. We have a hard time with the results of it, but we like our freedom of choice. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, he created them with the capacity to choose to love him or to reject him. Because in God's eyes, love that is forced is not love. But love that is chosen is love. So if he created Adam and Eve without the possibility of sin, they have not chosen God, but been created only to be forced to love him. But God's like, that's not how I operate. He gave them the opportunity, and the problem with our hearts is we make a beeline for the tree to take of its fruit. And that's how sin entered the world. And so when we look at these passages, we ask why evil, we're reminded that God allowed us to choose because he wants us to choose him. How these things all Mesh together are some of the most mind-blowing questions. So I don't pretend to have all the answers. But what I do know is that God is a God who wants us to love him. And we, in our sin, don't do that too often. We, in fact, are born in sin ever since Adam and Eve. I mean, think about how God attacked them, right? Adam and Eve took of the fruit. Cain kills Abel. They have another son and another one. Lamech, he actually takes multiple wives, kills a man. And then it's Genesis 6. And we see this in, in Genesis 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of, the, of man and was great. In the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Six chapters in the Bible, and that's the, that's the conclusion. Sin has entered the world because we have not chosen God. 
God chose not to crag over the world because he wants us to choose him. Amnon rejected God. He followed Jonadab's advice. He pretends to be ill. His dad comes in. He requests his sister. His sister comes in, makes him the food. And then chapter 13, verse 9, she says, here's your food. And he says, come closer to me. And we see in verse 11, when she brought them the cakes near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that he hated her, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. This is evil. This is evil at its core. Amnon rapes his sister. He abuses her. And then he dismisses her. And she has no voice. She asks, where can I carry my shame? Culturally speaking, a woman now in her situation would not be easily married to someone else. In fact, we read a few verses later that her brother Absalom brings her into his home and she lives a desolate woman the rest of her life. It's a tragic story. It's a story I hate. It's a story that is disgusting. Amnon's twisted trickery abused his sister. There there are so many complexities to this story. I want to mention even a few others before I I, I want to shed the light of God's hope here and talk about this. But, But what's so alarming to me is we look here in verse 21. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. That's a right emotion. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. What else did David do here? What else does it say? Nothing. King David was angry, but did nothing about it. He knew what had happened, but remained silent. Maybe it was his feeling of his own guilt from his own past, like how can I now... Reprimand my son when I did the same thing. Maybe David was concerned because this is the heir to his throne. And we saw in chapter 6 that God promised that the heir would then be the one who ultimately who the Messiah would come from. What we find is David does everything except for what he's supposed to do. And that's hold his son accountable. Family, this is why the Me Too movement was so electric in our society. Because for many, it was the first time that perpetrators were then held responsible for their evils. Too often, people in power are silent while people are being abused. They know of situations, but rather than dealing with them properly, they remain quiet. 
and allow the evils that have taken place to not be addressed. This cannot happen. Not in our culture, not in Hollywood, and surely not in the church. The Me Too, Me Too movement, what it did was four things, and I'm grateful for these four things that it did. It empowered the victim's voice because there's strength in numbers. But sadly, over, there were was, was millions of people who used the hashtag Me Too to say that that was my story of sexual abuse. And I know there are some of us here in this room who would say Me Too. But I hope you know you have a voice. Me Too has held perpetrators accountable. What it does is begin the healing process for those who've been victimized. By God's grace, it will fourthly prevent future abuses with this understanding now and equipping of a younger generation, our children. Parents, inform and educate your children about good touch and bad touch. Protect your children as best as you are able to. Take very care whose houses they're at. If they're going to spend the night somewhere, be very vigilant. We just got to be so proactive because from the time of this writing, which is some 1,000 years B.C., nothing has changed. The evil heart is the evil heart. The World Health Organization said a third of all women worldwide have been victims of sexual violence in one of their estimations. A third. In 2017, ABC and Washington Post did a poll that found that 54% of American women report receiving unwanted and inappropriate sexual advances, and 95% of them said that such behavior went unpunished. I do want to say, if you are still in an abusive situation, you, you can get out of it with God's help. And I just want you to know, please get out. Please get out. Call the police. Call the police and let the Brook leadership know. Get out and call the police. Get yourself safe. And I want you to know you have the freedom to do that. Because a lot of times abusers manipulate situations so that you feel like you have no way out. You have a way out. I do want to say if you are an abuser or have been an abuser, these are outrageous things, as is said here in scriptures. They're evil. You need to confess your sin and repent. And you need to accept responsibility for your actions and face the consequences, whatever those consequences might be. Because that's justice. So don't hold on to your secret. Secret. Confess your sin to God and then to others and then receive the consequence of that and then you run to the cross of Jesus where there is healing and forgiveness. What's hard for me as I read this passage were Tamar's words. It's even hard to read them aloud if I'm honest. But Tamar says in verse 13, where could I carry my shame if you did this to me? And what happens to victims of sexual abuse, and by the way, sexual abuse is not just something that happens to women. 
There are many men who've been sexually abused, past and present, as kids, youth, or adults. And you might be asking, where can I carry my shame? I thought Tamar's question is the right question. And sadly, as we read this chapter, there, there, there's no answer given to her. But I'm thankful that in my Bible, this is just page 317. And there's some thousand other pages here in this word. And towards the end, there is a deliverer who says, I will take your shame. But where will you carry your shame? I want to tell you five things to do with it. First, carry it to the cross. Your shame might be because you feel ashamed because something has been done to you. And that's the way the enemy works because sometimes when we've been sinned against, we start feeling like we're responsible somehow for someone else's evil. Jesus is saying, you're released of that. You don't need to feel that shame and guilt. And some of you are feeling shame and guilt because you are the abuser. Carry it to the cross. Psalm 23 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. This is the promise God gives to all his children that come to him. There is no wound that God cannot heal. There is nothing that the cross of Jesus cannot fix. But we must come to it and say, Jesus, I need you today. I need you to forgive me. I need you to heal me. I need you to make me whole again. And I love that our God doesn't put band-aids on gashes. He does not put Febreze on ashes. He does not put blindness and put glasses on it. Now, our God fixes it, and how has he done, done it? Isaiah 53, 5, Jesus says, it says this of Jesus, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are what? Healed. Now, I know a lot of these passages are addressing the shame that comes from sin. In Tamar's case, this was not a shame that came from her sin. But nonetheless, there is still healing when there is shame. God is a healer. And as Nehemiah repaired the walls of Jerusalem, God can repair the wall of your heart. As Ezra rebuilt the foundations of the temple, God can rebuild the foundations of your life. As God redeemed Rahab, the prostitute's story of social shame, he can redeem your story so shame no longer has its hand over you. Rahab became the great-great-grandmother of Messiah Jesus. And as Jesus raised that little girl from the dead, telling her in the Aramaic, Talitha kumi, which means rise, he speaks to your deadened soul and says, arise. Arise. Psalm 30, verse 2. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. Would you cry to God today for help and receive his healing? Or Psalm 107 says in verse 19 through 20, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. You feel like you're walking in destruction? Let God's word come out and heal you today. Psalm 147, verse 3, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. So what do you do 
What would you tell Tamar? Where can I carry my shame? First, you carry it to the cross of Jesus. Secondly, the cross of Jesus frees from the shame. In fact, Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame, which means that the shame was put on Jesus, and he despised that thing. He went to the cross, he paid for it, so that he could free us from it. And then we're told in Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Where do I carry my shame? Carry it to the cross. Secondly, because the cross of Jesus frees you from shame. Thirdly, the cross allows you to see yourself as God sees you. We sang it, I'm no longer a slave to fear because I am what? A child of God. When we put our faith in Jesus, we need to understand who we are and see ourselves as God sees us. And he does not see us for our sin. He sees us for our identity. And our identity in Christ is sons and daughters. And so a lot of times our shame, our hurt, our heartache prevent us from seeing the truth. The truth is that through faith in Jesus, you are God's child. Fourthly, the cross empowers you then. And this may be the hardest of them all, to forgive your offender. I don't say this lightly. I don't say this lightly. But I know if I don't say this, I'm not speaking God's word. Because God tells us as we've been forgiven, so are we also to forgive. And what forgiveness does, it, it releases that person from holding their actions against you. It frees you from the bondage of that unforgiveness. Someone once said that unforgiveness is drinking poison, hoping the other person dies. When really it's you who's dying within. Forgiveness does not mean that the sin didn't take place. Forgiveness does not mean that they're off the hook. Forgiveness does not mean that what happened was okay. Neither does forgiveness mean that everything's got to be all right. Forgiveness means that before God, you've released them. Say, God, they're in your hands, but before you, God, I'm receiving you. That's what forgiveness does. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So also, you must forgive. Forgiveness is also complicated because there are times when we think we've forgiven, we've moved on, something will trigger a memory or hurt and, and we feel the unforgiveness then come back up and, and what it means is you just go back to forgiveness and f- go back and go back and when Peter asked Jesus well, how many times do I do that and Jesus says 70 times 7 which means don't, don't count it just keep forgiving because in your forgiveness you're finding healing and wholeness and so as a community We've got to walk with each other and how to do that. Help each other. And when you find yourself struggling, let someone know so you can learn how to forgive. And then the fifth thing, we think about where can I carry my shame? We carry it to the cross because the cross gives you the ability, and I love this, to believe God for a new day. What has been done to you, what you've done to others, doesn't need to prevent hope in Jesus. For those who've been abused, I want you to know there is a new day for you.
for you. There is hope for you. There is joy for you. There's laughter for you. There, there, there is satisfaction in life for you through Jesus. But you've got to stay anchored in him and hold on to his promises. Some of you may have watched the Macy's Day Parade on Thursday. It's a classic thing in our culture. And what it's most known for are these enormous balloons. These balloons have been flying since the 1920s. In fact, I was reading about this. What they would do at the end of the parade is they would release the balloons to the sky, let them go off, and whoever found it would bring it back and get a gift at Macy's. Crazy, right? Over the years, though, what they've learned is that these balloons can't fly under certain winds. In fact, in the 90s, one of the balloons knocked over a light post that hit somebody. There have been several times balloons have hit a pointed corner somewhere, have blown up and created a a big scurry, and it was very dangerous. So now what, what, what New York says is if the winds are sustained at 24 miles per hour and gusts at 34, they cannot fly the balloons. It's just too dangerous. Well, this year there was a fear that that would be the case. There was a fear that these wind gusts would be too much, and so the day, of the, the day of the parade came, and they were monitoring the wind gust and sustained winds. And they were right around the max limit. And many people were concerned, like, oh, no, we're not going to see these balloons. These are an iconic part of the parade. But what they realized and what they ended up saying was, you know, if you fly the balloons lower, they can sustain the winds. So take SpongeBob, for instance. 44 by 46-foot balloon typically flies 55 feet in the air. And so what they did on Thursday, because of these great winds, they lowered it to about 15 feet off the ground. If you see the parade pictures, the, the, the balloons were literally right off the ground. And I thought that was fascinating, that these high winds are dangerous the further from the ground these balloons became. But as these balloons were lower to the ground and closer to their anchor, they could be sustained in the greatest of winds. See, this is, this is the beautiful thing about the cross of Jesus. Because we have experienced some of the worst evils in the world. We have seen things. We have heard things. Things have happened to us. But I need you to know that these are great and horrible winds in your life. But the truth is, as we stay close to the ground of our Savior, as we hold on to him and the cross of Jesus, he will sustain us no matter how crazy these winds do get. And they do get crazy. And he will protect you, he will guide you, and he will watch over your heart. And he can repair it. Because there is no wound our God cannot heal. You know, after we walked that river walk in San Antonio, began to do some research about it, because, like, this is crazy how things fall into this river. And we found out there was a time where they would drain the river once a year. Now it's about every two or three years. They would literally drain the river because they would need to do so to clean it out. So many things fell into the river. So much debris, so much garbage. So they drained the river, and what they would find is tons of trash. The trash was not visible until they drained the river. But what also became wild was the things that they found of value in that river. Watches, rings, other things of value. When we read scriptures like these, they, they hurt, but as when we see them 
to their trajectory pointing to the cross, we see that God's got a purpose in it to drain our lives of all the muck that has weighed us down, to clean it out, and then to show us the values and the treasures that are in those broken hearts. And the greatest things of value are your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit that lives in you through faith in Christ, and then your identity, which has never been touched. Because in Jesus, your identity is a child of God. That's the value and the worth that this world and sin and shame and guilt have tried to cover up. And when we walk in those things, we're not letting the beauties of who God made you to be shine forth. So let today God drain those things out. Do detox, spiritual detox in your heart. And say, I want you to see you for how I see you. I want you to know, God is saying, to those who've been weighed down. I want you to know my love for you when you come to me in faith. When you come to me in repentance. When you come to me as you're all in all. When you stop trying to fix things on your own. You can come to him. And that's why we can sing, we're no longer slaves. Not to sin. Not to fear, not to shame, not to guilt, not to anything that has happened to us. But we are indeed children of God. I hope you heard it loud and clear today. There is no wound that our God cannot heal. And there is no broken heart that our God cannot repair and give an upgrade to. You just got to come to him. To close in this final song, we're going to have a prayer team. Our prayer team has been ready, praying for you. We knew this would be a heavy message. I just want you to know that there is freedom in Christ. Some of you are going to want to come, just come up to our prayer team, be prayed with, pray in your seat, come to the altar, pray for someone you know, pray for circumstances you're aware of. But I pray that we would ultimately just look to the cross and say, God, thank you for your freedom and your healing and your forgiveness. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Lord, I just thank you, God, for just meeting us here. God, I, I, I thank you, Lord, that even, even these most terrible of wounds are things that you see and there are things that you want to come in and fix in our lives. God, we know that there, there are so many complica- complexities attached to this. God, I pray for that brother, that sister, those young people here, that we would run to the cross, that we would run to our spiritual community, that we would seek counseling to help work through and process our story. God, ultimately, I just pray that we would rest in Jesus and experience the fullness of the life that you offer us. God, I pray that this song, this final song, would be a declaration from our heart, a true prayer from the depth of our being, affirming who you are, what you've done in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's rise to our feet.